Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is your host, Mary Woods, and our guest today is James Crabio, who has written a book called Troubled Childhood, Triumphant Life. And let me introduce James to you. He is an educator, writer, licensed professional counselor, and nationally certified cognitive behavioral therapist who practices in Scottsdale, Arizona. He specializes in treating anxiety and depression for adults and children. He has served as a teacher and guidance counselor for over 30 years and has taught graduate-level counselor education courses for Chapman University. In 2005, he self-published Stepping Out of the Bubble, Reflections on the Pilgrimage of Counseling Therapy. His latest book, Troubled Childhood, Triumphant Life, Healing the Battle Scars of Youth, is about the impact of adverse childhood experiences on adult functioning. He offers solution-focused strategies to assist adults in overcoming the perils of their past. Um, Welcome, James, to One Hour at a Time. Thank you, Mary. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Um, it's a very interesting um, title for your book. I think that, uh, you know, childhood is something that we all get through, but I don't know how much of us actually survive it. Well, it's a difficult thing. You know, according to a recent uh, decade-long study by the Center for Disease Control in Kaiser Permanente Hospital, they've indicated 60% of American adults were affected in some way by adverse childhood experiences. So these ACEs were defined as dysfunctional behaviors displayed by parents, such as emotional, physical abuse, neglect. So you can see that this is a difficult problem, and I wanted to piggyback off that study and uh, write something that might be healing and um, productive and helpful to um, today's adults. Well, you know, um, some folks have adverse experiences in childhood and seem to have some either protective factors or resilience, and other folks um, don't seem to have the same types of coping strategies. So what are the typical things that um, hang people up in childhood? Well, of course, that's what my study was about, is looking at, you know, why do some adults navigate the uh, the perils of their past, and why do others get stuck? And I found that adults from troubled childhoods tend to learn to process their past more effectively as opposed to people who deny their story or ruminate about it. I'll have people come in, an individual, and they'll tell me these horrid stories about things that happened to them, 
Some of them may be reflected in terms of their childhood experience, but they tell it as if they're kind of reading a book. And I'm sitting there, and I'm obviously kind of uh, emotionally absorbing what they're saying. And so part of what I find is people who don't process tend to minimize it. They'll do it through intellectualization, self-medicating, and other ways where they, they find themselves just sort of shutting down or have shut down to the experience of what their child was really like. So it's the adults who do the processing, and I can explain a little bit about what that means. Okay. Um, can you explain that to us now? Well, processing means that you see the full emotional impact of the way your experience really was, what happened. In other words, you swallow the bitter pill and you understand that there's no one, including your parents, who could rescue you. They were not competent enough to do it. It wasn't as if they didn't care. They were inept. They just didn't have the skills in order to help uh, individuals through it. And what I've found is that children cling to the illusion that their troubled parents will somehow morph. They're going to become these loving, nurturing adults that they've always yearned for. But what happens is troubled kids perform to please. They keep trying to get the validation from their parents. But when it's not forthcoming, they tend to turn their anger on themselves, and they make a very important distinction and assumption. They say they are defective. They don't say that to themselves, but that's the conclusion that they come to. The reason why they do that is they can let their parents off the hook and they can minimize the pain. So when I see adults, what I'm seeing is that minimization. And I'm also seeing adults that are saying, it must have been my fault. I must have done something to make it this way. I didn't try hard enough to get my parents to love me the way I wanted them to. You know, when when I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking to myself, wow, what what causes someone to protect their to protect their parents to the point where they turn that all towards themselves? What is that dynamic? Well, it's an interesting thing that the parent that inherently kids have a tremendous amount of love and compassion and care for their parents. They want them to be okay. And for them to believe that their parents are not okay, in other words, in some way they're, they're not effective parents, that they're just uh, absent, that they're emotionally vacant, to come to that conclusion would be too painful. So they hang on, they cling to the notion that somehow their parents are going to get it right. And even in the most abusive situations, children will cling to an idealization of their parents, believing that they're really okay, that there's nothing wrong with them. And this is what they drag into adulthood and begins to create problems because what they're doing is they're, they're, they're calling themselves or labeling themselves as defective ones as opposed to the parents that weren't able to give them what they needed. Um, you know, I also see that carried over in some respects to, um, to, to adults who have identified the fact that their parents weren't able to provide them what they needed, but then feel guilty because they have feelings of anger or they have feelings of abandonment or disloyalty. 
that's an well, excellent point. Uh, I call it the false guilt deal. Yeah. And what happens is I define false guilt as when we allow our parents to have a sense of power over us. And in this sense, and I reflect that in my work, that one of the things is getting your power back because children are just totally uh, enmeshed and believe that their, you know, their parents have this, this power over them. And as, as, as children go into adulthood, this dynamic continues where I'll have a, a, a parent who's you know, trying to communicate with their parents in the here and now, and they don't know how to set appropriate boundaries. And so they may uh, talk to them, and they don't know how to stop the conversation if it goes south. They don't know how, if they're going to go visit them, they'll stay for two weeks when they really only want to stay for three days. So they're not able to set appropriate boundaries because their parents, at least in their mind, I have this power over them. You know, um, I, I'm listening to, to this and thinking about um, my own childhood and, and some, some friends of mine, and I can remember as a child thinking that my, my parents were, like, perfect. And, you know, they were kind of, I had this ideal version of, of them. And I, and I remember getting angry at them for a period of time, like in my late adolescence, where they, they weren't really the people I had hoped they would be or that I thought they were. And then eventually coming to terms with the fact that they were human and, and that they weren't supposed to be perfect. But that took a while to figure that out. It does take a while. And one of the goals that I see is for I believe that until we see our parents as humans, as seeing them as less than perfect, and until we're able to forgive them for any damage that they might have done, because all parents, to a certain degree, create some wreckage, um, some more than others. But until we're able to come to that and we're able to release that, we're able to let it go, we don't get to the point where we can actually see our parents as they really are, as adults, just like we are. And so once we're able to forgive and let go, we're able to release things, and it frees people up to create new ways of thinking and behaving in the present. And so that's, that's what's extremely important for all of us, and I don't see forgiveness just as an act. I see it as a process of working through your resentments and angers and bitterness that you might have towards a parent and then moving to the point where you say, okay, you know, I flushed that out. Now I can see them for who they really are. But a lot of people miss that step when you talk about processing. They don't want to deal with the difficult parts, the, the dark corners, of what occurred in their childhood or maybe what occurred with their parents. Why do you think that is? Uh, Again, it's too painful that it's easier just to gloss it over. Uh, Many of my patients, you know, they, they don't want to look at some of the scary things that happened 
if there was any uh, either physical abuse or emotional abuse or uh, where our parent was highly critical, um, you know, all of these things, that it's for them it's painful to see their parents that way, to recognize that. And I think also they believe that it's an indictment, that somehow if they say these things, that somehow it's an indictment of their parents in general. For example, I have an exercise that I have people do where they, uh, I'll have them um, write a letter to their parents that they don't deliver. And many times people will have a difficult time with that because of false guilt. And I always tell them, look, every time you're writing something about your emotions in this letter, preface it with, I love you, Mom, but, or I love you, Dad, but, and then talk about some of the resentments or some of the things that you had. You don't deliver this letter. It's for your own purposes. And once you flush this out, uh, you're going to be healthier. You're going to see things more clearly, and you'll be able to move forward. So I think it's just the conflict of kids not wanting to feel like they're turning on their parents and and saying negative things. And we'll be right back um, with more after this short break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Do you remember what life was like when you were young, having the mobility and ability to play all day and then sleep through the night without needing coffee in the morning? For the majority of us, gone are those days. But they don't have to be. Transforming Health with Brad King will show you how you can awaken your youthful energy potential and live a disease-free life of abundant energy and vitality. Transforming Health is broadcast live every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your guest today. I mean, actually, I'm your host today, and our guest today is James 
Crabiel, who is an educator and writer and licensed professional counselor from Scottsdale, Arizona, and he has written a very interesting book called Troubled Childhood, Triumphant Life, Healing the Battle Scars of Youth. And we're talking today about how um, most of us are are raised by imperfect people, and some of us have um, some deep-seated scars from our youth, and others of us have some resilience, and other of us are still trying to figure it all out. So we were talking before the break about what what are the hang-ups that really children get stuck with or stuck on as they grow into adolescence and adulthood. And we talked about a couple, but I think there are a few more. Aren't there, James, that, that children get hung up on? Yes. First of all, what I look for in terms of dealing with people is what I call core assumptions or schemas. These are the underlying ways that people look at life. And sometimes if people have had some negative or adverse childhood experiences in need of healing, they may say things like, um, I must perform admirably at all times. And this is a, a kind of a, a script that's carried out within their family system. Or they might say, I'm responsible for all the bad things that happened to me and I should be blamed for them. Or I must avoid conflict at all costs because it is risky. Or they might say other people's opinions and beliefs are more important convincing than my own. And what this does is it leads to adult characteristics. For example, the people perform to please or they, they lack confidence or they lack the ability to disclose emotionally or they have assertiveness problems or intimacy problems or they get involved in addictive behavior or they avoid conflict. So all of these things uh, are, as I say, if they're not rectified or carried into adulthood in terms of these what I call adult characteristics, and then they're played out in terms of their relationships and behavior. So um, specifically, um, I, I know we've talked about emotional abuse and sexual abuse um, and physical abuse. Are there other scars that... that children have from youth that aren't directly related to their parents, be it bullying or, or loss of a parent, um, or is that a different kind of phenomenon? Uh, no. Uh, bullying is obviously a critical problem when you're talking about, you know, peer, peer relationships, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a very, very difficult problem that we have in our society. So bullying is a, is a, is a critical issue. The loss of a parent is a very, very critical issue, but even that can be connected. I had a patient who wanted to see me, and um, he, his relationship broke up. He had just broke off, and that's why he came to see me. He says, um, my, my girlfriend says, I, I'm too intense, and she's probably right. And then Without taking another breath, he continued, and he said, my father died suddenly. I said, I'm sorry to hear about that. How long, was your, how long ago was your dad's death? It was 15 years ago. And he was able to make this connection, and the connection happened to be the fact of what happened in terms of the energy within his family, that he became a caretaker to his mother that he wasn't able to talk about his father's loss or his father's death, 
His mother turned inward. She became self-absorbed and avoidant. And she never had, he never had the opportunity to grieve what had occurred, and neither did the other children in the family. And so uh, this was factoring into how he was dealing with relationships in terms of lack of boundary setting, lack of assertiveness, lack of emotional disclosure, all because of a loss that had happened years and years and years ago. And in some ways he lost his mother as well as his father. Exactly. He lost three. He lost his father, and that's exactly what I told him. I said, you had three losses. You lost your father, you lost your mother, and you lost your girlfriend. And it was just very, very sad. Uh, He did work through with me and spent a lot of time working with me on it. But he was a very insightful person, and he was insightful enough to understand the impact that his family history had on his ability to lead a productive life. So that's one example of, of how, the, how like an adverse childhood experience affects an ad, someone as an adult. Are there, uh, do you have other examples? Yeah. Um, I had... Um, um, I'm thinking of a, of a patient who uh, I was dealing with, in fact, recently, and uh, she was telling me in, 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 that her, her partner that she was in had, had, been, uh, had assaulted her in a sense, had thrown her, grabbed her around the, um, the thoracic area and thrown her on her bed and had been screaming at her because she wanted to break up. She, she wanted to break up. He came over to the house, and all of this drama went on, and she finally called 911. Now, here's where the connection comes in. When I talked to her about it and what had happened, it was as if she had, again, minimized it. It wasn't, it wasn't as big a deal as it really was, in my opinion. It was a critical deal, and she's currently with this guy. But the issue was that she then pointed back to some childhood sexual abuse, some abuse that she had had in her childhood. And I said, well, you know, there, there you go. I mean, that you, you learn to settle. You've learned to not say, I deserve better than this. And somehow we have to get you to the point where you understand that you deserve better than what happened to you during your childhood, and you deserve better than what you have now. That's going to take some emotional work until she sees the full emotional impact of what happened to her in April when she was dealing with this guy. That's um, That reminds me of someone that I've worked with who... Um, who had an extremely chaotic childhood as, as a result of um, a parent who who had alcoholism. And so this person never really knew what to expect from one day to another and has um, become, uh, you know, has, has completed college, has a career, and um, when they're in the throes of chaos, they are very at home. And while uh, almost to the point where chaos is normal for them, and, and if they're in a structured kind of um, setting, they don't do as well. They almost become passive, where they become energized in, in the chaos. 
Well, it's interesting that you're right, that people become, I call it uh, their love affair with misery, that they become comfortable with dysfunction. And there are individuals who have told me uh, when they were in the military and they've been in Afghanistan or Iraq and, and so on, they come back and they said, I was able to cope effectively. And I said, what do you think made you be able to cope? And he, they'll say, well, my dysfunction in, in childhood. <laughs> that basically, because things were so dysfunctional, that they were hypervigilant, they were able to, uh, you know, they were able to come into a, a, a way of alerting themselves to what they needed to do at all times, and they were able to cope because they had dealt with that. Then what is that effect when you come back into a situation where there isn't chaos and you don't need to be hypervigilant? It's bad <laughs> because you're coming back and you're trying to translate into civilian life and you're you're trying to and uh, you know to leave behind that kind of lifestyle and and get over a lot of that kind of uh, trauma and uh, PTSD and whatever else happened. So it's very difficult. It takes a long time for people. Uh, many don't do it successfully. Their relationships break up. We know that marriage breaks up with, you know, a lot of them with uh, with that uh, with war and and uh, trying to trying to get back into civilian life and make it work. So it, it's a real problem. You know, that brings me to a topic that uh, one of my coworkers and I were talking about last week about the fact that most of us <clears throat> who are 40 or, or older, um, were parented by a generation that went through severe trauma, whether it was because they were in World War II themselves or they were refugees from the war or they were at home where their roles, like women's roles, changed so dramatically during that, that period of time that there was so much trauma in that generation that that must have had an effect just culturally on us. Have you thought about that? Yes. It had uh, a significant effect. Uh, I know even from my background, it was a significant effect. What I am concerned about in terms of dealing with people, though, is I'll have an individual come in and they will talk about how horrible their parents' experience was, and rightfully so. It was horrible. But what happens is they use that experience as an excuse for not dealing with their own feelings about how it affected them. And so that's the key. You know, it's very important to understand our parents' history and how they got the way they, they did. And how, but it's also another thing to understand that it did affect us and we need to understand emotionally how it did impact us and be able to uh, leave that behind and, and move forward beyond it. And we'll be right back after this commercial break. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Are you trying to lose weight? Maybe you're trying to exercise more. Have you given up on your quest to quit smoking? Maybe you just haven't found the right program yet. Tune in to Hypnosis, Health, and Happiness with Dr. Larry Deutsch. Each week, Dr. Larry and his fitness and healthcare experts will help you learn more in order to make the changes in your life that you desire and achieve your goals. Hypnosis, Health, and Happiness is broadcast live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today, and our guest is James Crabio, who is an educator, writer, and licensed professional counselor and nationally certified cognitive behavioral therapist practicing in Scottsdale, Arizona, and he has recently written a book, Troubled Childhood, Triumphant Life, Healing from the Battle Scars of Youth, and we've been talking about some of the um, situations and experiences that kind of hang us up in childhood that create some really dysfunctional characteristics as an adult and um, we carry these into all of our relationships and we maybe even be passing those on to our children Um, but there's also very effective strategies that um, can be used to help people um, heal from some of these battle scars of youth so James could you share with us what some of those um, healing strategies are yeah Um, first of all you know, it's important as an adult to give up this magic illusion that somehow your parents are going to become these loving, caring adults that you've always yearned for. It may not be in the cards. I've had many um, clients that have held out believing that that's what was going to happen. And it's, it's for them, it's, it's a disappointment because... You know, basically, at their um, parents' age, the, cha- the chances, the prognosis for of change is minimal. So they have to do their own work and understand that, you know, this is their, this, these are their parents, and this is the, probably the best it's going to get, and they have to learn better coping strategies for how to deal with them. Uh, again, I ask people to write a letter to their parents and share their deepest feelings about what they've experienced as a child they don't deliver the letter, and this is therapeutically to assist in releasing pain from the past. Um, I think it's important to listen to the inner critic. This is the voice derived from the parent that speaks in harsh tones, provides disparaging messages, and uh, sometimes I'll say, you know, who is that voice? And they'll either say, well, that was my mother's voice or that was my father's voice. And then the idea is to get them to start rationally responding to this inner critic. You know, if it says, how could you do such a stupid thing? 
um, you respond by saying, well, you know, in the inner way, we all make mistakes. This experience doesn't define who I am. I'll do better next time. Um, learning to make realistic appraisals about who you are and what you do. I call leaving behind the tyranny of the should. I should have. I ought to. I must. And so on. Uh, thinking in terms of preferences instead of absolutes. It would be nice if my business partner thanked me for a job well done, but it's not essential. Um, and always ask, what role did I play in this problem? If any, get out of the self-blame because it's not helpful in solving problems and only serves to, to create victimization. Um, a lot of people have problems with boundary setting. Now, quit giving your power away to others. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Start asserting yourself, telling others what you need and want. And if you confront potential conflict, people will respect you. They're not going to run away from you. These are just some of the things that in my uh, experience that I've found. You know, we talk about forgiveness. I've said I believe it's more of a process than an act. Hopefully at some point adults are able to forgive their parents for being less than perfect and causing them harm. Um, You make it sound so simple. Well, it isn't. I know. I know. it's, It's an emotional because what I'm finding is and this goes along with cognitive therapy. People believe that if they just think differently about stuff, that everything will be okay. Well, what I've found that changing a person's thought processes is only one facet of the process. Part of it is getting at these core assumptions that get activated, these things about, oh, I'm no good, or I'm not good enough, or... You know, I'm I'm always doing bad things, or I've got to avoid conflict because it's risky, and all of these things. They're they're very very potent and powerful assumptions, and until those are dealt with, it's very difficult for adults then to reframe their thinking. Um, is there a role for support groups? In, um, in, in the healing strategies? Yes. In the healing strategies, there's always a role for that. I always say find support of friends that you trust that can help you to role model more intimate, connected behavior. Understand that your past doesn't have to have power over you in the present. And friends are not your parents, and you can learn to selectively Disclose information to others, letting yourself be more emotionally transparent. So any kind of support in terms of, of friends that you trust that can help you, you know, find your way can be important. Um, bibliotherapy, some self-help uh, books can be helpful, but I always find that they're more helpful in terms of, you know, working with other people, either a therapist or with friends or with some agency that might be able to assist you, or with clergy that might be uh, able to help you to kind of sort things out. You know, I, that um, your, your premise about the underlying um, assumptions that are deep-seated and, and firmly held, um, I often wondered back in like the late, mid to late 80s when the whole concept and um, kind of consciousness raising around adult children of alcoholics 
and the inner child concept. And, you know, I, being an adult child of an alcoholic myself, I was just always leery of, of some of that because, because of those um, well-entrenched um, assumptions that, that we have. And, and to go out and to, and to do this stuff with your inner child, that just to me just didn't seem to fit. You know, because it wasn't covering those assumptions. It was kind of more of the the the, the top layer, if you will, of what mm-hmm. was going on. And I'm just wondering what your reaction to what I said was. Well, first of all, I grew up in an alcoholic family. Surprise! You know, it's like, you know, this. I probably couldn't have written this book if I wouldn't have, you know, had this. But back to your, your question, the first layer is okay because the first layer decreases some of the intensity about the experience. So when I talk to people and they talk to me about, you know, having an alcoholic father or mother or whatever it is, it's just one more way that they're decreasing some of the intensity over that experience, and that's fine. But flushing that out or talking about that is not getting at the, the the core of it. The core of it is then, okay, what was the family system? What did what did what what did it look like? What were the underwritten rules that governed this family that that created, you know, these kind of problems? And in every family there's these unwritten rules that govern the the, the dysfunction and they're caught rather than taught. And we pick these things up, and these are the things that trip us up as we move into adulthood. Those are the things that need to be addressed. There's, those are the hot buttons. I think one of the other things that I've always um, found to be kind of confusing, too, is that oftentimes, you know, um, you know, parents can be, you can love your parent even though they're doing things that aren't right. You know, and, and I think sometimes as counselors we get into this black and white kind of thinking with, with our clients about, well, you know, um, your mother was emotionally distant and that's, that's wrong and that's bad, and, but you still love that person because not, not everybody, well, very few people have all really negative qualities. So I, I, I'm thinking about that because I saw Shania Twain on the uh, OWN network and she was talking about her alcoholic father who was physically abusive to her mother, but she said, I loved him, and she felt so guilty about that. She didn't love everything he did, but there were times he was a very loving person, and that's confusing for kids. Well, you never want to take that away from anybody. The reality is that we do love and hopefully do love our parents, and the, the goal is to say, okay, there are some difficult things that happen here, uh, let's focus a moment on those things and sort those out and deal with those things so that you are able to see your parents more realistically and in reality you're able to actually love them. It frees you up to, to love them in a different way that you weren't in the past because I believe that, you know, it's like paradoxically, if you deal with the dark side of any relationship, you will actually make the relationship more productive, it'll heal it, and you'll actually have a more effective response from whoever you're dealing with. 
in this case, parents. So um, when we're thinking about, like, uh, healthy parenting, what are some good parenting strategies? Well, the, the first part is I wanted to say for the, the, parents, the parents that have a difficult time either do one of two things. They either under-function, so they're emotionally unavailable, or they over-function, so they're enmeshed with their kids and they tend to live vicariously through their children in such a way that the kids lack confidence. Uh, as far as positive parenting, you know, these are the parents who are involved. They're emotionally involved, and they're involved in the activities of their children. They believe that they know that someday their kids are going to grow up and they want to be there for their different activities. The goal of their parenting is self-determination. They want their kids to be on their own. I always say never do for a child what he can do for himself. You know, only do the things that you want to do, but don't overfunction on behalf of kids. Affirm them when they do well, when they're doing the right thing. Use coaching as discipline part of it. In other words, teach your kids how to do the right things. A lot of times we don't teach them what are the appropriate things to, to do. Set logical consequences, both positive and negative. Parents are really good with the negative, uh, but they're not as effective in using positive discipline in terms of even chores or responsibilities that kids have to do at home. And set clear and consistent boundaries. These are the deal breakers. These are the most important things. And in my mind, the most important thing that you can teach children is civility. You teach them how to be kind and considerate to other people no matter what their thing is, no matter what. And we'll be right back after this commercial, and we'll continue that thought. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you are looking for a real political discussion from more than one viewpoint, make sure you tune in to No Labels Radio with Nancy Jacobson and Mark McKinnon. It's not left, not right, but forward. As part of the No Labels movement, which promotes common sense solutions to our country's most pressing problems, our program will feature hot political topics with serious players driving a national conversation. Listen for No Labels Radio every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Let's think forward. 
The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Approximately 1 in 150 children are affected by autism, giving autism the undesired ranking as the most prevalent childhood developmental disorder in the U.S. 67 children will be diagnosed today. That is nearly one child every 20 minutes. Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica, hosted by Terry Aranga, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Terry offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcasts each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is James Crabio, who is an educator, writer, and licensed professional counselor and nationally certified cognitive behavioral therapist practicing in Scottsdale, Arizona. And um, we're talking about um, good parenting and good parenting strategies. And right before um, we went to break, um, James was talking about teaching our, our children to be to have to be civil, and it brings to mind which um, <clears throat> uh, something I just read in the paper, and I'm read today that more restaurants and movie theaters are thinking about doing this. Is There was a restaurant in Pennsylvania that um, as of July 29th or something, children under six won't be welcome. And the reason was because there were so many experiences of young children being loud or screaming or, or throwing tantrums that that people who were paying good money or who had hired a babysitter to go out and have a night out, that their whole meal was being disruptive. And you know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I think it's unfortunate that a that an establishment, that a restaurant, would need to do that. But on another level, I can understand it that this is a difficult problem. And uh, I've seen many times in restaurants where uh, parents have not gotten a handle on it, and I. And, I, and, and uh, I believe that if they were just to take their children, if they were too loud or if they were obnoxious or if they were, you know, doing something that was really inappropriate, uh, and they could take them out and talk to them uh, and say, look, you know, you've you got to get your act together before we reenter the establishment. Now I'm talking about kids who are the age where they can be reasoned with, you know, more like four or five and so on. Um, but I see this all the time where, you know, kids are, are not, they're, they're, the boundaries are not clear. And before you go to that restaurant, those boundaries need to be set. 
in terms of what's appropriate. But part of it is that I look at the parents, and they don't seem to care. You know, many times they just don't seem to get it. It doesn't make any difference to them if their kids are loud and they're in the restaurant. They're not doing anything in terms of trying to um, to muzzle that. So I guess it's kind of hard to teach our kids to be civil, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think if we role model it, first of all, I think if we're tough, if we mean business, a lot of times if we don't tell our kids what is appropriate and what isn't, and this is what I see, that that a lot of times the kids are not being told and of what's appropriate. So they're going to role model our behaviors and the behaviors we have if we treat other people with kindness, no matter what their orientation is, no matter what their economic status is, if they see that we treat people kindly, if we see that we're good at, um, you know, sharing our thoughts and opinions in a kind, considerate way with others, they're going to pick up on that. It's caught. And then they're, they're going to be in a better position. If, if we're not aggressive at home with a spouse or with our children, they're less likely to be into bullying or do things that are going to be of that nature. So all those things are important. If we don't set positive consequences uh, for and, and give them tasks and chores and say, okay, your allowance or any money you get is going to be based upon these things that you do, that's part of teaching civility. Or if they cop an attitude, um, taking away privileges immediately of having some kind of consequence that's going to, to matter to children, that they don't talk to their parents with disrespect. And... You know, I don't, I quite frankly don't think it's as hard as as we make it out to be. I think that parents just get lazy. They just get lazy and they just don't want to deal with it. And could you surmise that maybe one of the reasons they're lazy is because of some, something they didn't resolve in their own childhood? From, yeah. You know, I is, think it, is this just a vicious cycle kind of? Or one generation, untreated generation affecting the next? Yeah, it's just the, uh, like an intergenerational trap. And it just goes on. And if, if, they, if people don't process how they were parented and they don't say, and I have a lot of clients, oh, my gosh, I don't ever want to parent the way I was parented. And they get it. They understand that they need to sift and sort and figure out what worked for them and what didn't work. This is something I had to do. There were some things that my parents did that were very kind and very civil, and there were some things that were very not good. They were, they were not good strategies. And I had to look at those things and say, okay, what do I want to do differently with my children than the way I was parented? And there were some you know, dramatic changes in terms of how I dealt with my own kids as, a, as opposed to how I was dealt with. And that's just the processing that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. People need to do that. Um, so if we, if we look at um, the issues that we're all faced with today, um, <clears throat> how, how hopeful are you 
that um, this generation of parents will be more effective than the last generation. Well, I'm hopeful because I see signs of hope. I see parents that are doing the right things, that are teaching their children the right things, that are uh, that have done the sifting and sorting and the processing, and are and are doing the right kinds of things on behalf of their children. Obviously, I'm disappointed when I see the lack of civility in our society and the lack of civility in our children, and the way that comes across and the manifestation of bullying and, and other ways that, that kids uh, are hurtful. But I think overall I'm pretty, I, I have a, a, a hopeful message, and I hope that people uh, will see that through my work, that it is a hopeful message, that I offer solution-focused ways that people can leave behind a difficult past and, they can search for more effective ways of thinking and behaving and ways of parenting. Um, how can people find Troubled Childhood, Triumphant Life Healing from the Battle Scars of Youth? Where can that be bought? Uh, they can purchase it at Barnes & Nobles. Um, they can uh, purchase it at other, even independent bookstores. Some of them are carrying it. Uh, if they can't find it in the store, certainly they can... Um, you know, pick it up online through Amazon.com, and that's probably the best place because uh, it's priced uh, priced right there. So either I'd say Barnes and Nobles have been the, the the best, and Amazon.com. And how can people get in touch with you if they would like to um, talk further with you or learn sure. more about you? And I would appreciate that. I would like any feedback, whether it's regarding uh, my book or just any kind of questions they might have. I would look forward to hearing from you. You can do that at scottsdaletherapy.net. That's my website. And it also on that website it has my email address, which is jkboardroomsuites at yahoo.com. All one word. So that's jkboardroomsuites at yahoo.com? Correct. Okay. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's been very enlightening. Thank you, Mary. I really appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, you're more than welcome. And have a good week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.